<laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so for, for those who don't know me, I'm Daniel. I'm really lucky to get to be one of the pastors here. And we're going to be exploring chapter 3 of Matthew for somewhere between 1 and 12 months. I'll let you guys guess. We've been very slowly working our way through Matthew. And uh, we'll be really meditating on John the Baptist this morning. I want to teach my way through Matthew 3, 1 through 12, just slowly seeing what comes out of the scripture for us. And then I want to meditate in three ways on this phrase that I'm going to unpack in different ways, which is that the folly of the prophets drags us into history. And especially as we start to commemorate Black History Month and we are doing our racial justice and racism in the church class as a community and building our Linden Life Partnership, uh, I will be drawing some elements of that work and some of the things that uh, I'm grateful to be experiencing in our partnership with them as well. But first I'm going to pray. Come Holy Spirit, please fill our hearts to overflowing. Please enkindle in us the fire of your love. So this is Matthew 3, 1 and 2 to start. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent, acknowledge what you're doing wrong, change it, and go a different direction. And the kingdom of heaven means essentially God's government, when things are run God's way. And I love really thinking about the work of Jesus as not starting a religion. That, would not that wouldn't have been the word that he would have used or that the early Christians used to describe what they were doing. They didn't say we're going to start a religion. They were Judaites, right? And they were Jewish culturally and religiously. And they were announcing the kingdom of God, which is understood by Jesus. And, and this is where he draws deeply from his scriptures that he had and carries it forward, I think, even more dramatically as, as a nonviolent kingdom. And so if we want to understand what the church is and what this huge extended family system of a weird sort through baptism that has been built over the last 2,000 years, we have to understand that it started as Judaite people starting a nonviolent government, which then interacts really interestingly with all the other normal governments out there that don't work that way. <laughs> and, and it's such an interesting angle into even whether you're a Christian or not, wherever you're coming from, just trying to understand what Christianity is, I think it's an angle that gives you a lot of insight into what we've been trying to do for 2,000 years and often failing. But sometimes we have managed to follow Jesus and all kinds of beautiful things fly out of that. So he came and he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, who said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And so John is coming in from the margins. He's placed himself at the margins of civilization in the desert, which is uncomfortable in many ways. But, and eating locusts, by, by the way, locusts, has anyone, who here has eaten insects? Thumbs up if, you, if they were pretty good. 
So like some, like some people have enjoyed eating insects. They are lean protein. They are sustaining food. God cares about our bodies. And even as John is here in this extremely marginal place, he's, he's enjoying delicious lean protein, or at least lean protein, and wild honey. And I want to meditate on the wild honey piece of this a lot because we just got to watch a video of Jeff and John, uh, our uh, pastors here who help run Asia's Hope and Cambodian missions arriving in Cambodia, where they have been at the margins of society in other ways, where they have been working with the most vulnerable children, especially those who are most vulnerable to being engaged in sex trafficking and other kinds of human trafficking. And that ministry that they've built is having intergenerational impacts that we're starting to see. And they've been able to heal intense wounding by not just creating orphanages, but by creating a family-style orphan care that, it, that brings these kids into a family system. And the kids who they've drawn in are thriving. And so they're at the, at the desert, at the edges of civilization in some ways. There is a sweetness to what they have encountered. And also, in a literal sense, they were sharing their breakfast, and it looked amazing. So if you watch on YouTube, you will see that they had this beautiful pork and rice and this beautiful soup that had blood cubes in it. I don't know how good blood cubes are, but, uh, but it looked amazing. And, uh, and I love that, that there is a sweetness, even on the margins. When I think about the honey in the desert, I also think about the Al Gol family, who has been, is a Syrian family who we've been blessed to be able to work with over the last year. And Walid, the head of the household, he recently, thank God, made it through some dangerous health stuff with his leg. Thank God, and the emergency room and everyone else we worked with to do that. And he's a beekeeper. He actually cultivated honey and royal jelly. And when I think of being there with the Al Gols, uh, I think of how eagerly Walid shares this amazing cardamom coffee every time we get to go and visit him. And that there is a sweetness on the margins. There is a sweetness in this, which is not to say that it's easy, and which is not to say that it's always fun to be in the margins. But God is there. Okay. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And here they are in some ways reenacting the Exodus narrative. They're reenacting Joshua's entry into the land in some ways. They are reenacting this process. And in some ways they're saying, we are still in exile. Why would a prophet of Israel and Judah be there saying, in some ways, we are still experiencing some kind of exile, and we still need to come out of it. I think on one level, we're all still experiencing exile wherever we are not in that grace-filled, loving way of God being in the world. And I think we all experience some of that. I think that's part of what was happening. In another basic sense, the geopolitical situation was one where a Herodian puppet regime from the perspective of, of John and from the early Jesus movement, a Herodian puppet regime had been put in there by Rome, which wasn't really representative of the way things were going to be. And I think those are closely related, that this regime was not following Torah well, was also not following the way of God and the way of the prophets and all of that well. And so what he's saying 
here is going to get him into trouble. And we know over the course of Matthew, well, a lot of us might know, some of us might know, over the course of Matthew, John gets his head chopped off by the Herodian government. And so this sort of thing that he's doing is a direct political provocation. It's reenacting the core narrative of the people of Judah in a way that is clearly critiquing the existing government. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So don't just go through a ritual where we just pass through some waters here, but also act like a tree that has been watered by the water of life and bear this fruit that is in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. When I think about applying this in our own context, which I think is super important, I think sometimes we will read this passage and, we'll, and there's a long tradition of Christians saying, the point here is that the Jews were bad and God was going to pass things on to the non-Jews. There's a, a lot of that in Christian history. And I think if we are going to get anything at all from this passage, we need to instead hear this addressing us. And so, do we think that we are children of Abraham through baptism? And as a church, do we consider ourselves part of that legacy? We, we do. That's part of our identity. That's part of who we are. But do we think then that just because we're Christians, God is going to give us something special just because just we happen to be Christians? Or is it that there's something that flows out of that when we're actually engaging that? Is there a life of love and care and transformation, a life of solidarity with people on the margins, a life of reconciliation, where we should be the people who are the very best at correcting our own mistakes. That's part of what we're called to be. That's what it means to be a reconciling people. We're always saying, sorry, I messed up, I want to change. Are we actually being that? Because that's what it means for God's grace to be flowing through us and doing that work. And so I think we can hear John challenge our own tendency to fall back on identity instead of following through on what that identity invites us into. And then John says, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We here in the vineyard love Holy Spirit fire. I have experiences, and we've talked about this in the last few weeks too, when I encounter what I think of as the fire of the Holy Spirit, there is a warmth to it. There is a feeling of embrace to it. There is an enormous gentleness and an enormous power in the way the Holy Spirit moves, and especially the way I think we in the vineyard understand the Holy Spirit moving. I think the Holy Spirit doesn't just fit in one box, but there's a certain type of experience that I think the Holy Spirit has embedded in our communities and is part of the fire that we spread around. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So then you think, oh, well, this is great. This is like a warm, fuzzy thing. But then he's going to keep talking about fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
well, that sounds bad. So is, so is this fire good or is this bad? And uh, I think the answer is it's, it's good, but it can actually be hard. The, that encountering the fire of the Holy Spirit can mean that there's things that we give up. There's, there's things that we change. And as we start to get ready for Lent and we get ready for Ash Wednesday, which is a season of giving things up and letting the Holy Spirit burn things up in our lives, one thing that we hope to explore are fears that we can give up. Are there specific irrational fears that we're holding on to? And that can be scary. But it can also be really beautiful when the Holy Spirit does that and we see what opens up from that. A little bit of historical context here too. So in its basic sense, John is prophesying like Hebrew prophets before him against the sins of his own people. He's removing the plank from the eye of his own people. And as I meditate on this, I will do some work removing the planks from the eyes of my own people. And sometimes that ticks people off. <laughs> so I will end up doing that because I can't honor John without doing some of that. We'll get into a, ticking people off a little bit here, potentially. But think of how rich this image is. God will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Prophets are talking about corruptions in the temple system. This doesn't mean the temple itself is bad. It means that it has become a place where we aren't doing what we're supposed to do with this. And God doesn't let us just go around and pretend to do God stuff and take advantage of the benefits that come from getting people to think you're doing God stuff and then actually hurt people and abuse people. God doesn't let that happen forever. The truth comes out eventually, and things get destroyed when that happens, and it's painful. And so when he says the threshing floor, we should remember that the temple was built on a threshing floor. So you would take your wheat up to usually a high place because the wind would help blow away chaff too. And so the, these threshing floors were often in high places. And in uh, the book of Samuel, Second Samuel, uh, we see... David buying that floor that becomes a threshing floor for the temple. And so if you have that image in mind and you hear John saying this, he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. It's yet another image of the temple being destroyed. He's speaking about the way that people interacted with and understood God in that time and place in a way that then applies to us too. And I think this should invite us in the same way to always ask, where are our temples that we have built where instead of dedicating them to the way of Jesus and the way of God, we have become hypocritical. Because God doesn't let that stand forever. And thank God, religious hypocrisy can't stand forever. And now I think we start to understand, and if we think about applying this in our own context, we start to understand why John got in hot water. <laughs> and, so, and why he was foolish. And so I want to really meditate on the type of foolishness that is the Hebrew prophetic tradition that John is embodying and representing so deeply and so well. So my refrain here, and I'm going to look at it in three different, from three different angles, is that the folly of the prophets drags us into history. So to start, I'm going to start with a verse from Matthew 23. So now we're jumping almost to the end of Matthew, where Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrite! You build tombs for the prophets, and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And yet, in this way, they are testifying against themselves. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? I think in a basic sense, he's saying, you are acknowledging that the prophets were good. 
You're saying, yes, this is the way things should be, that the prophets spoke truth, even when they critiqued and they spoke truth about problems in our society. They spoke truth, but now we want to like, get on the bandwagon now that they've shifted the way things are in society, but we don't want to get on the next thing that God has to address in our society. So I think that's one basic sense. There's another deeper sense in which this just so beautifully, I think, illustrates the intergenerational process that happens when God's reconciling work breaks out in the world. That there are people who are consistently on the fringes of society. They are desert people. They are subsisting on the little bit that you can get at the fringes of society. And for example, especially because it's Black History Month, the story of dealing with white supremacy and racism in our country has involved people who were extremely marginal. The abolitionists were not popular. They were seen as annoying, they were seen as too far out there, they were seen as troublemakers, they were seen as people who were pushing things too far, too fast. And yet, in the following generation, almost everyone wants to decorate the tombs of the abolitionists. And it's the same story with the civil rights movement. We, you know, we recently got to honor uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we are now meditating on the history of Black History Month. It's the same story. The overwhelming majority of churches during the civil rights movement were not on board. They, they went they were somewhere from rapidly opposed to these troublemakers to, oh, well, maybe they're going a little too fast. Why can't we be a little more patient about these sorts of things? And yet, it's that strange fringe who we honor today. And there is an intergenerational process that happens in this type of work where the folly of the prophets in their own generation does move the agenda and it does move the ball slowly intergenerationally. And the people who oppose them in each generation are usually happy to claim that we would have celebrated them in the previous one. That's how the story goes. And people get killed doing this. So one specific group that I want to draw on a little bit are the Freedom Riders. And there's a song, this is like super niche. Has anybody listened to the Highwaymen for like Johnny Cash and, and all those guys, right? It's like a super funky song about like a highwayman and it goes through generations and, and it's sort of like, is this a song about reincarnation? I think this might be a song about reincarnation. Um, and so there's a group called the Highway Women, or the High Women, who did a, a weird tweak of the song. And you might think this sounds like reincarnation, but I think they're specifically talking about these intergenerational processes. And it's especially clear in the way the High Women cover it, which is just one of the small reasons I really like this version of it more. But this line in this song makes me cry basically every time I hear it. So hopefully I'll make it through without losing it here. I was a freedom rider when we thought the South had won, Virginia in the spring of 61. I sat down in the Greyhound that was bound for Mississippi. My mother asked me if that ride was worth my life. And when the shots rang out, I never heard the sound. But I am still around. And I'll take that ride again and again and again. That happens every time, seriously, okay. Um, I love that. And uh, the first Freedom Riders in, in 61 there, it was 
seven African-Americans, six white people getting on a Greyhound. The federal government had decided that you are allowed to ride together in a bus and that local segregation laws did not apply. And so they formed groups of people who would follow what was then the federal law, but was not the law on the ground in the South. And they used a combination of mob injustice and threats and police and illegal corruption to continue to try to enforce it. And so they were living in the future they wanted to live in and confronting that unjust system. And they changed things a lot. And we still have a long way to go. And I just want to highlight, though, that they weren't the first people doing this. And so Bayard Rustin, who was an individual who was heavily involved in the civil rights movement, they'd been doing this back in the 40s as well. And they were called Journeys of Reconciliation. And it was part of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And there was a heritage that went before that. And there was an intergenerational process that you can trace back to the abolition movement and to all kinds of other movements before that that was transferred intergenerationally and that slowly wore down forms of resistance to justice. And this is a beautiful story that it's easy to celebrate in some ways today, I think, for a lot of us. And it's a prophetic story where prophetic work means truth-speaking, especially the type of truth-speaking that might get you into trouble, especially the kind of truth-speaking against existing power structures. Which then raises the question, and so this is sort of big picture, and this is in a sense, the legacy that goes all the way back to the prophets that continues to carry forward. And so if you think, what would I do if my child wanted, came to me and said, I want to be a prophet when I grow up? <laughs> right? like, let's, let's, let's make this real now. Right? Uh, some of us might go, yeah, awesome. And, and I, I, we need some of that, but I'm deeply concerned for you because... <laughs> I'm not sure if you understand what this job entails, right? Um, some of us, I, I think most of us, and, and this is often the experience in families, is we think, like, this is deeply concerning. I don't, I don't know if I want my kid to go into this deeply risky mode of life. And I think that's important to pay attention to, too. I think we need a lot of that. I think it, is, it does not need to be the case and it should not be the case that we, that we persecute and marginalize and kill our truth-tellers. It doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. That's not the way it's meant to be. And when we hear that, and if, we, if you think of your kids having a vocation like that, and have inside a, a deep reserve and concern about it, I think that's good because it shows we're paying attention to our bodies, to the way God cares about us, and are counting the cost on what we're actually talking about with this whole Jesus business that Jesus has sucked us into. And so, we can also ask, how would you feel if your child wanted to be a freedom rider? Or if your child wanted to get involved in Black Lives Matter or in other work that puts them in some ways in a marginal location? I want to bridge a little bit because Everything doesn't have to be on the hardest setting either, right? It's worth thinking about the, the intense difficulties that people do face for this type of work, including today. And I also want to share a little bit about the recent work I got to do with Robert Caldwell, who's partnering with us from Linden Life. He's leading our racism in the church class. But he also does something amazing, which is a poverty simulator 
that they use to train the local Columbus Police Department. And so we recently got to participate in this. And for those who are taking the class especially, but for this congregation, this is a volunteer opportunity that is going to sort of exist in our ecosystem regularly whenever these trainings come up. And you simulate poverty in the context where you're, you have some people in the roles of police. I got to be a, uh, a local school that tried to do a decent job with the resources that we had. And it's a really interesting exercise that then brings you into talking about what's really going on and how, for example, police can use their discretion in a redemptive way, in a way that's sensitive to racial injustice and that's sensitive to current situations. And I don't think this is a magic pill that will magically fix everything right away. And we've been able to see, with them doing this over years, that it is helping deepen and change the culture of the Columbus Police Department in some ways. And so that experience did not involve anybody chopping my head off. But it did involve a little bit of brave truth-telling, where sitting with some police, I got to say that our church really supports Black Lives Matter, and there was a moment with some of the police where you could tell it put them on edge. And I had to be a little bit, just a little tiny bit brave to share that, right? Um, so I think that's an example of how truth speaking in big ways is something I deeply admire, and I'm gonna talk about some people who've done that just to the degree where they've lost their lives. But we all have little entry points, and I'm really grateful for that, because I need the little on-ramps into this sort of thing. Part of what's involved in this, too, with the, and so part of the way the folly of the prophets drags us into history is it drags us into thinking about our own national history and making sense of it and being in touch with it and not shoving it down where it becomes uncomfortable. So that's one of the senses. The folly of the prophets also drags us into history because it is one of the richest and deepest ways to get insights into what was happening 500, 600, 700 years before Christ, up to and leading into Christ. It helps anchor us in the history of the world and the most impactful movements that have happened in the history of the world. And so it connects us with the history of our whole world and what's actually happening with us right now. So those are two senses where the folly of the prophets drag us into history. The third way I wanna talk about this is that the folly of the prophets drags us into history because they force us to integrate our own past and present and future instead of being disconnected from ourselves and our own experiences. And part of the beauty here, even though Jesus is, for Matthew, at the roots of creation, even though Jesus in the New Testament, we understand, especially as revealed in John, is the divine logos. He's the logic at the core of everything. He also, in order to fulfill all righteousness, and we'll get to this in the next part of Matthew 3, becomes receptive to a line of a prophetic heritage from John the Baptist. So he also, he who gave everything, received as well from John and got drawn into this story that he's also drawn us into. And so for me, one piece of my own history that this kicks up for me came up when I started thinking about asking you all this question, but then I ask it to myself too, which is what fire has been passed on to you and what fire do you carry? What fire has been cast on to you? What fire do you carry? For me, has anybody here read The Road, the Cormac McCarthy? It's, I see some nods. Of, so it's an incredibly dark book. It's about a post-apocalyptic world where 
you don't know what caused the apocalypse, but humans are eating each other. It's utterly depraved and terrifying. There's a child trying to survive with his father. And there's a question, through, there's a point throughout it where the father says, well, we'll be safe because we carry the fire. And his father dies. Uh, and at the very end, uh, I'm going to spoil this. If, uh, if you don't like spoilers, I'm going to give you one minute to cover your ears or walk out of the back of the church and you can come back in in a minute. <laughs> it's a bold move to tell people they can walk out of the church in the middle of a service. Uh, so, uh, so spoiler alert. So his father dies and he's... And he's, he hasn't been able to trust anyone else. Everyone, there's not another trustworthy person in this world. And he finally meets some people who are uh, surviving at the edge. And he looks at them, the kid looks at him, and he asks this older guy, uh, do you carry the fire? I'm going to cry again. I'm going to make myself keep crying in this service. So he looks at the older guy and he says, do you carry the fire? And the old guy stares at him for a long time, trying to figure out that, what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> And then he says, yeah, yes, we carry the fire. And so the kid trusts them and goes with them. And there's the suggestion that he finds some measure of safety in this, in this brutal world. Um, and so that's the background for me in thinking about what fire has been passed on to me and what fire um, do I at least hope to carry. And one thing I think about is uh, my friend Matthias, who... Um, brought the spiritual direction training course into our church. It's a very gentle way of open listening. And we were in the midst of working on um, <clears throat> integrating that into our work throughout the church. Right? This is something that uh, we're going to do um, to integrate gentle listening to God and to people as how we really think about Christian discipleship. And, and it helps. Part of what I love about it is that it decenters me as a pastor or anybody else as the discipler and lets Jesus be the discipler and we are the students of Jesus together when we listen deeply in this way and we listen to God in this way and uh and then Matthias had an aneurysm and uh he's still with us and he still has the most gentle presence uh he still ministers to me when I occasionally get to meet with him uh through his spiritual presence he we thought he was going to die and he came back to life essentially they were getting ready to pull the plug and he essentially came back to life like on or right after easter <laughs> so as we're getting ready for lent this was a huge moment and then but that wasn't the end of the difficulties right he was very limited in what he could do and so it's been intensely difficult for his family system and for all of us connected with him in so many ways right i think and i think that through that type of a healing god wants to say something profound to us that, that there is sweetness and there is pain at the margins. But part of the fire that I continue to carry um, is, is that work that we started with Matthias. And, and I do that because that was a fire that he passed on from God to me and into the life of our church and that carries forward. And we think about the prophets. We think about John the Baptist. And we think of the fact that he died. And that, like, that's not much of a career, right? Like, again, like, think back. Oh, so let's say your kid comes to you and they say, I want to be a prophet when I grow up, just like John the Baptist. And you say, do you know what that means? I say, yeah, I want to go and get really powerful people mad and I want to get my head chopped off. <laughs> right? Okay. And there's a part of me that wants to say, do you think that's very effective? <laughs> is, that, is that very effective? 
Um, which is a good question to ask. And yet, the strange thing is it's hard for me to imagine anything that's been much more effective than history than what John the Baptist did. And the fire that he started and that he passed on to the one who had passed it on to him. And so when you think on God's timeline, which treats thousands of years as two days, right? And uh, a day of the Lord is like a thousand years. So we're on day two of Christian history now. <laughs> you think of God's timescales. And all of a sudden, all of, like when Paul talks about how the wisdom of the world is folly to God and, and folly is wisdom. I think part of where it actually starts to make sense is not only in the sense that God is also there beyond this life. I think that's an essential part of this. And also, God is working through the eons of history and through the millennia of history. And God's just working on a different time scale. And so John did something incredibly effective. And he didn't get to see the fruit of it. But he got to be a part of something that God is doing that is just so beautiful, so profound, and so moving. And I think that is the prophetic heritage that we are just so incredibly privileged to get to taste and stand at the edges of. And speaking of tasting and standing at the edges, we are going to move towards communion. So how does that sound? And uh, there's a little communion prayer that I'd like to pull up. It's fun to think about fire and water, right? baptism and water. We have our coffee thing. I think this is kind of cute. Our coffee thing has, like, it's got a blue thing around it. It's like water and there's fire because you use fire and water to make coffee too. <laughs> and you use fire and water to make bread, right? You mix the flour with some water and then you use heat. and you So you combine fire and water to make bread. And this baptism thing and this communion thing have all of this simple but incredibly rich symbolism associated with all of them. And so if you are feeling like you're on the edges of the church or of community, uh, you are certainly welcome. We practice open communion here, which means that anybody who wants to participate is welcome to participate in communion. Um, it is a commitment. So when we take communion, we are saying we accept Jesus into our lives and we want to follow the way of Jesus in this life. And so there is a communion stand here for people around there, one here, you can come up the middle, and one there. We uh, have enough room to move where you can sort of freely participate in that. And then as a continuing act of worship and communion with God, we also have people who will be happy to pray for you on the edges. We can call that the desert or wilderness margin of the church then. <laughs> so here's our communion prayer. Come Holy Spirit, by your power, please make us disciples of Jesus Christ. Make us branches bound to the true vine by his love. Make us siblings adopted into his family by his blood. Make us students ever more conformed to the image of our teacher so that we can join him in that eternal moment as he turns all things over to the Father so that God is all in all. So, welcome to the table.